The BC legislature summer session returning today. It will be a COVID-19 new normal in the house. And to give us an idea of, of what went into the planning to make it safe for a return to the ledge, we welcome, very pleased to welcome NDP House Leader, the Honorable Mike Farnworth, uh, Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It must have been uh, quite the uh, the juggle, the the planning. I, I looked at the document, the the twelve pages of of all of the pieces of this puzzle and and how to make the summer session safe during a pandemic. Can you give our listener an idea of of how much work you have put in so that we could get to today? Uh, there's been a lot of work uh, has gone into this. So uh, first, we had to ensure social distancing, which means that the chamber normally holds 87 members. And after discussions with Bonnie Henry, uh, we realized, obviously, that's not going to work. So there will be a maximum of 24 members uh, in the chamber at any one time. Uh, we will significantly reduce the number of staff that are, that are working uh, to support the chamber, um, and then we also need to ensure we had to put in place a system that would allow the participation of uh, members to participate uh, by, uh, by virtual, by Zoom, is the technology that's being used. So then we have to ensure that every member has the ability and the capability with their, with their laptops or their, their home computers or office computers to be able to access that. Uh, we ran a number of uh, 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 tests over the last number of weeks involving both staff and, and uh, MLAs to, to ensure that it works properly, uh, to try and iron out any bugs and unintended consequences and things that crop up, and I think we've done that. Um, we've got this week, uh, if there's anything further that we've got to try and figure out, but uh, we're all set, and uh, it's going uh, to be quite different. It's going to be unique, I think, in the country. Can you give us an idea of how it was decided which MLAs would be in person and who would be on Zoom? Yeah, so each caucus will decide which MLAs they need to have in the chamber. So myself as, as government house leader, I will probably be in the chamber nearly all the time uh, each day. Then as ministers who have particular pieces of legislation, obviously they will need to be in. Um, and then uh, other members uh, will, will be in by, uh, by, by virtual, by Zoom. Um, the other aspect of this, which is unique, is, is that normally we sit Monday to Thursday, and what we'll be doing is sitting Monday through Wednesday and then sitting Thursday and Friday virtually. Uh, so the proceedings will only be done on Zoom, and that's to deal with the budget estimates that have to be done. Uh, and again, that's going to involve some creativity in the sense that <clears throat> ministers may well be in their office, um, and then staff will either be in their office or close by to be able to assist with the questions and the opposition will be asking those questions remotely as well. Um, and at the same time, the public will be able to watch um, on, the, uh, on the, uh, the parliamentary channel. That will be a fascinating viewing versus what we're all used to. Uh, will media be in attendance or will they be remote viewing as well? Because usually the media are standing out in the hallway waiting for yeah. any opportunity. And again, that's another area where we've had to work with the media to come up with a plan that can ensure social distancing. So what we will do, we've arranged um, so that each day when, if, when the media wants to ask questions and to be able to, you know, scrum in a, but in a, in a much more uh, controlled way of, of ensuring that you don't have that, you know, the mob of cameras and you're right in the middle of them, is there'll be a microphone set out what's in front of the, the Golden Gates or what's also known as the Blue Curtain, where MLAs are, will be able to go 
and, and receive and get questions uh, from the media that they'll be able to uh, to answer. And the media themselves, <clears throat> pardon me, will be using a uh, um, a pool um, camera. Uh, and so it's it's again, there's been a lot of work going in to make sure that the media has the access that they need uh, to uh, to members of the legislature. Right, and as little risk as possible. A lot of thought has gone into this. We're with NDP House Leader, the Honourable Mike Farnworth, the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Uh, Let's get a little bit, before we get into the politics, actually, one more question with regard to the safety. You mentioned, you know, you've been walking through all of this with uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice. Will there be any PPE involved? Is masks uh, suggested, optional? Uh, What comes into play with regard to that? Or is the distancing uh, at a level that everybody's comfortable not wearing any PPE? Within the chamber, the distancing uh, is uh, is at a level that uh, if, if people do not have to wear a mask, but if they choose to, that that's fine as well. So the way it will, is working is like literally every third desk. So there's a good six feet between uh, each member uh, in the uh, in the chamber, and then there's also plexiglass um, for the uh, for the clerk's table uh, again for that added level of of, of safety, and then a reduction. Uh, in terms of the staff themselves who actually work within the chamber. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the politics that we can expect uh, beginning today. Uh, obviously, we're going to be hearing uh, the, about the 2021 budget because that's where everybody left off, even though that was pre-pandemic and, has, as some say, been blown to smithereens. Yeah, no, so the uh, the session itself will involve um, um, legislation that's already on the order paper, so a number of bills are at second reading and another bill, a number of bills that are at committee stage. So the work will continue on that. Then the government, um, there will be the introduction of some new bills. Uh, dealing, some of those bills will be dealing with uh, COVID measures, for example. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the 2021 budget, uh, which we are in the middle of the or the budget estimates process. So that's the the uh, the spending estimates for each ministry, uh, and that's where. Um, we've got the supply, so government has the ability to, to spend until uh, a nine-month supply bill was what, when we left the House. Um, and then um, now we're going to be going through each ministry's spending estimates. And so the opposition will be asking questions on, on that. Uh, and that will take up a fair amount of time of the session. BC Liberal Party leader Andrew Wilkinson is going to join us after the break to, to give sort of his perspective on what is going to be the priorities for his official opposition uh, moving forward this week with the summer session. Uh, but I do w- want to sort of point out this is a fascinating time for us all to watch politically and certainly for you and and all of the leaders uh, going back to the legislature to do the politics as we have all grown to uh, expect even during a time where after four months of complete and utter bipartisanship it has really been something to witness how how everybody has has sort of agreed to 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 fight later fight COVID-19 first and worry about everything else later it feels like we're kind of getting to that later to that new normal to some degree do you feel that? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think we've had, uh, I think British Columbia has demonstrated to the rest of the country um, how we can get things done and how to approach uh, dealing with a pandemic. And, you know, I've had excellent cooperation in terms of uh, uh, my relationships with both the uh, the, the BC Liberal um, uh, House Leader and the Green Party House Leader in terms of putting this session together and making it work and 
all of us looking at what needs to happen to make it work because we all fundamentally recognize at the end of the day, um, you know, this is the people's legislature. We have a job to do and we need to make it work. There'll be lots of time for, you know, question period is going to be, uh, will continue. There will be question period. Uh, I fully expect that the opposition will be asking, you know, uh, tough uh, questions um, and on the, the legislation and in the estimates. That's their role. Uh, but all of us have a role to make sure the institution works. And I think we have shown uh, to date um, that we can do that. So I'm looking forward to the, uh, to the session. Um, and there'll be question period and uh, it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be B.C. It will be BC and there's confidence in watching how all of this has transpired and in, in that there is very much so a common goal. And we do thank you. I know it's a very busy day for you, sir. And I, I appreciate you taking some time out, out for us today. My pleasure. Jody Vanson for Mike this week. If you'd like to uh, send any comments, you can to Jody at CKNW.com. Give me a follow on Twitter at Jody Vance. And uh, we are continuing to talk politics because it is a big day. It is the return to the legislature. The summer session returns today. It will be a very COVID-19 new normal in the House, as we were just speaking to NDP House Leader, uh, the Honourable Mike Farnworth, about that. Now we welcome the Honourable Andrew Wilkinson, the B.C. Liberal Party leader and leader of B.C.'s legislative official opposition to the program. Hello there, sir. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's nice to talk with you. What are your expectations for today? How are you feeling about getting back to work? And are you in the legislature, legislature, are you Zooming? No, I'll be in the legislature today. I'm here in Victoria, and it's surprisingly quiet in Victoria, much quieter than Vancouver in terms of this level of street activity. And I think that starts the conversation of why we're here, is the NDP are wanting to pass their now $65 billion budget. That's about $13,000 for every single human being in British Columbia. And it's based on the events of... Uh, last year and up to February of this year. They haven't made any changes to their budget. So we have to point out, well, that's basically a fiction. I mean, it's not a real budget. So we'll be taking them through that budget line by line to make sure that we are getting the truth out to British Columbians. And the other side of that coin is that we thought after four months of COVID, the NDP would have a coherent plan for restarting the economy and for assisting small businesses, especially tourism, and it turns out the last week they said, well, they don't have a plan. They're just going to actually put out a survey now and they'll take six weeks to do the survey. And I think there are a lot of people worrying about their future in British Columbia right now who are expecting a lot more leadership from the provincial government than another survey. Certainly, there are great concerns across the board in British Columbia. That To that, we can certainly agree. Uh, COVID-19 has really seen, uh, over the last four months, an incredibly um, nonpartisan sort of back and forth, as as you've all discussed here on Mike's program and, and other shows on CKNW publicly, is saying, you know, we got to get through this together. Uh, but today really marks a return to that political baseball, that back and forth, the time to ask those tough questions and put forward. I didn't even get to the point where I asked you if the budget would be a priority. It's so much a priority for you, sir, that you're like, let's talk about it right here, right now. How do you think these this estimates process will unfold? Well, we go through 20 different government ministries, and the obvious one to start with is the tourism ministry. The world has turned upside down, and yet the NDP want to maintain, oh, no, nothing to see here. It's the same old budget, same old priorities, same old issues. And the rest of us say, 
get serious. I mean, we have a huge problem in this industry in British Columbia. People are unemployed. 130,000 people have lost their jobs in tourism. I was having dinner with my niece last night. Her summer job has vaporized. She was going to work at a wilderness lodge, and it is cancelled. There is no work. So we have a big task ahead of us, and part of that will be asking the NDP directly in the legislature here what precisely they're going to do about tourism, which is in a real uh, catastrophe here in British Columbia because of COVID-19. No question. Along with other industries uh, coming to mind, the restaurant industry certainly incredibly impacted and and has um, is is such a massive employer that there are small reliefs that are coming. But is there enough? And again, it hits the bottom line. It hits our budget. Precisely. And you know, we heard on the radio this morning from an NDP representative, Mosa Hoda, that their idea of an effective. Uh, support for the hospitality industry was that there are now 85 new patios in Vancouver. I think, well, that's good. We suggested that two months ago, and we're glad to see they're actually making some progress on it. But that's 85 patios, maybe a couple of hundred jobs. There are 520,000 people in British Columbia who are working a year ago who don't have a job now. So we've got to get on to this. Uh, the federal government has been very active in this space, and we've seen the provincial government do remarkably little. So we'll be pushing them hard on these issues to figure out if, if there's a plan at all. And if they've got a plan, why aren't they telling us what it is? And that's the piece of this that I struggle with. I always try and find out, okay, what if I had the power, what would I do? Because I don't know that there is an answer for your niece's summer job with borders closed and travel basically at a standstill and really the gathering of people limited as per our public health officials. How can politically the tourism industry be helped at this point? Well, we've sent a dozen letters to Premier Horgan since May the 5th with more than 60 ideas in them. One of them, right off the bat, back in early May, was to say, let's have a three-month break on uh, provincial sales tax. That'll put everything on sale. It'll get people back on the streets. It'll take a burden off the merchants and retailers and tourism operators, get people back in the mood to be spending. Because you've got to remember, half a million people in this province who had a paycheck a year ago don't have one now. Mm-hmm. And so the, this is a real concern in terms of getting consumer confidence going. And we're going to have to do that with an active marketing campaign for British Columbia tourism, for making it very clear what the rules are. And that's been another problem we've had is that the, the vagueness in the rules that people are just saying, well, I don't know, I don't understand what the rules are, so I think I'll just have to stay home. We are seeing some of those uh, um, promos roll out now on on television and hearing them on radio about exploring our backyard. So there is there's some there seems to be a push toward getting British Columbians out and and about and and spending and doing in this province. But an interesting idea, one of your 60 being that three month break on sales tax. That's the first I've heard of that. Yeah, we put that out on May the 5th and, of course, got no reply whatsoever from the provincial government. And this comes back to where we started this conversation that, you know, provincial sales tax is supposed to provide uh, $8 billion a year in revenue this year. Well, we know that number is just plain wrong because spending just ground to a halt over the last three months. So what's the real number? What's really going on with the provincial finances? And the Ministry of Finance gets the checks in the mail. They know how much money they've got, and they so far haven't told us. The federal government's going to have a comprehensive fiscal update on July the 8th. That's two weeks from now. 
and the provincial government saying they're not going to provide any kind of update at all. This is not acceptable. Well, Mr. Wilkinson, as per usual, you're chomping at the bit, and today is the day that it all gets underway at the summer session at the legislature. Thanks for joining us and giving us sort of a taste of what your priorities are. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jody. All the best. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. You can reach me, Jody, at cknw.com. Give me a follow at Twitter at Jody Vance, Jody with a Y at Jody Vance on Twitter. Uh, good to be with you and very glad to have joining us Global BC's on- online journalist uh, based at the BC legislature, Richard Zussman, is on the line. Hi, Richard. Hi, Jody. Good morning. So, are you at the ledge right now or are you at home? I am on my way back from dropping the kids off of my parents heading home. But I won't be at the legislature uh, probably until the fall, if not the new year, because uh, we have uh, my mother-in-law's living with us who uh, is uh, concerns around uh, COVID-19. So I will continue to be working at home, but we've set up a system. I'm also the press gallery president. And so we've been working over the last uh, two months to ensure that, you know, the public gets the information from the legislature for all of those, those that are working from the building and those that are not. So things will look a little bit different when you watch the news hour tonight. Uh, you will see the scrums have been replaced uh, with uh, a different style of interview, uh, but the government will continue to be held uh, account to account by uh, journalists across the province. And so we've, we've made some COVID-19 tweaks, uh, but I feel like uh, we can all do our jobs, even if we're not going to be actually in the halls of legislature. Excellent to hear. That is pretty much uh, the Coles Notes version of what uh, the Honourable Mike Farnworth told us a little bit earlier, that uh, a lot of thought has been put into how, uh, in the safest possible manner, the media can still have all access that needs to be at the summer session at the legislature. So yes, as the president of the press gallery, I was wondering how you were going to swing that. Um, Okay, I want to pivot with you though, because it's not politics necessarily that we're talking about this morning. Um, It was this weekend, uh, rather a bombshell with regard to what happened out at UBC and it was sort of buried on the weekend. So can can you give us the overview of what happened to the UBC Board of Governors Chair, uh, Michael Korenberg? Yeah, so Michael Kornberg uh, was the chair of the UBC board uh, since 2018 and um, a few weeks ago or over the last few weeks had been liking posts on social media uh, that were uh, in support of or against anti-fascist movements and against Black Lives Matters protests and screenshots of those tweets surfaced uh, last week uh, in independent media uh, detailing sort of their concerns you know why is the chair of the board uh, liking these tweets associated um, in against the Black Lives Matter movement and then following that there was uh, some concern being raised inside the UBC community around Kornberg's role um, on the board and his role as a figurehead for the university. And on Saturday night, which, you know, is so um, rare to have a, a government because ultimately uh, he reports to the university and the university reports to the Minister of Advanced Education. So there was a statement that came out on Saturday night uh, from both the Minister of Advanced Education as well as from UBC itself saying that Kornberg uh, had resigned from his role as the chair of the board. Uh, and then a statement came out from Kornberg himself explaining that, you know, these tweets, which many believe are 
a racist, um, that he liked these tweets as a way to bookmark them to go back and read them later, that he fully didn't understand how social media worked and that he didn't believe that the public could see what tweets he was liking uh, and that he, you know, stands in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, believes in working towards uh, policies that um, are anti-racist and uh, but felt it was the best thing for the university to resign. And so he resigned on Saturday, effective immediately. Uh, one of the vice chairs now steps into the board, but it but it's bring up a whole sort of uh, number of issues around the community and, and uh, you know, what sort of comes next uh, for the university as it works towards a sort of anti-racism policy inside the institution. This seemed rather swift and decisive over uh, likes on on Twitter. Could there be more to this story underneath, or is are we at a place now where that is and should be enough? Yeah, and it's a great question, Jody. And I I don't know. You know, the university uh, has sent out a statement saying they were highly concerned with the social media behavior. Uh, but did not indicate uh, any previous incidents. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, public officials uh, have platforms on social media and those platforms are very public. And there is a very, very heightened awareness, especially with the public language UBC's using around anti-racism, that to have a board chair who, for whatever reason, would indicate liking these sort of articles uh, is highly concerning both internally but also in terms of the public perception of the institution and what's being done uh, for the institution on on anti-racism activities or or moving forward uh, in terms of anti-racism policies i mean Policies, yes, certainly. Uh, And in watching your story on Global News Morning, um, some of the clips from student organizations at UBC who were very much on top of this, who were looking at the social media, very engaged, obviously, on the topic of their uh, university and were... Uh, astounded that anybody in a high-ranking position might do this, even in their quote-unquote private life. Nothing's necessarily work or private these days, especially when it comes to social media. There's a huge lesson, is what I'm saying, attached to this uh, that Michael uh, Korenberg certainly learned with the swiftness of, of I'm here. The, the ask here. Can yeah, I lost you there for a second, oh, Jody. I'm oh, sorry about that. I can't. And okay. I lost you there for a second. But but yeah, there is a big, big message, obviously, with how swiftly they move on this. And, and you know, I tweeted about the Saturday night and it has um, become one of my most retweeted tweets ever. There And there is a mix of opinion on this out there. And, mm-hmm. and this is what, through social media especially, has dominated a lot of this conversation. And you see this... The systemic, this movement groundswell around the, this cancel culture. And there are those who often align themselves on the political right who speak up in these stories and say, this is unfair cancel culture, that institutions like UBC and others are very quick to react to criticism without actually investigating what those actions were all about. And it is going to be an interesting conversation as we're having the debate now in our society more 
then in the past around racist behavior, racist language, supporting racist um, posts and ideologies that, you know, will there be due process in all of this? And do we require due process or is it enough? Because in this case, Kornberg resigned. And yes, uh, people will point out, oh, he was forced to resign. Well, based on reading his words, it seems he realized that what he did was wrong, that it would leave a bad impression on UBC, and he ultimately made that decision to resign. But we are going to continue to have these thorough conversations around cancel culture and also um, due process as we assess people's behavior in, in under a new lens, which which I think is is an important way for our culture to, or communities to go in terms of observing things under a new lens here. I'm Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week, continuing our chat with Richard Zussman, Global BC online journalist based at the legislature. Uh, we're not talking about the ledge even on this day that the summer session gets underway under new COVID-19 uh, health orders. Um, I want to talk about another big health story in British Columbia, and I know you've been on this file as well, Richard. Um, Thursday night, it came to light, or at least was brought up by uh, a guest coming on later on the program, actually. The CEO of Métis Nation BC, Daniel Fontaine, um, said that he had this report uh, dated from March 2019 about this Price is Right game allegedly being played in uh, emergency rooms, either at one emergency room or some emergency rooms around British Columbia. And that saw uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix make a statement on Friday. Uh, Richard, can you unpack this a little bit as we try and follow this bouncing ball? It kind of feels like it came out of nowhere and yet is a massive story. Yeah, so what happened was this report uh, was discovered, and this is a relatively new job for Daniel Fontaine, so I haven't spoke to Daniel about this, but my best sense would be he was would be looking through some previous reports that were done and found this allegation written up in a report uh, in March of 2019 and raised those concerns uh, to Ministry of Health officials. As Health Minister Adrian Dix described it, he received a call on Thursday uh, late uh, from his deputy, Stephen Brown, telling him of these allegations. And uh, Minister Dix immediately uh, decided to launch an investigation and called Mary Ellen Terpelifond. And a lot of the listeners will remember that name. Uh, she was the former representative of children and youth, a real force in this province, a uh, former judge, a lawyer, and asked her to launch the investigation. And then on Friday morning, there was supposed to be a press conference about uh, COVID-19 and uh, Indigenous communities in the province with the First Nations Health Authority. That was cancelled and came as a surprise to a lot of people. And 20 minutes later, a press release came that Minister Dix was going to be announcing uh, something about racism in the healthcare system. And what he announced uh, was this allegation of a game that had been played uh, in an emergency room or emergency rooms, as you mentioned, Jody, that uh, uh, doctors or nurses or staff, we're not quite sure yet, uh, would guess the blood alcohol level of patients coming into the emergency room, and it was predominantly Indigenous patients. And uh, Mary Ellen Trapelafont describes that she is now investigating one incident, but that she has a much larger scope that if concerns come up of this happening in multiple places, as well as other types of systemic racism in the healthcare system, she can investigate that as well. So the investigation formally gets underway today. Uh, she is going to be uh, providing details at some point this week, she said, around what comes next, uh, what the scope is she's looking at, what the timeline is, and but she has a lot of authority from the province uh, to do this investigation to 
get to the bottom of these allegations around who was involved, when they were involved, and, and uh, how widespread it was. And as you mentioned, Daniel Fontaine, fairly new in his role as the CEO of Métis Nation BC, formerly of BC Care Providers. We all uh, know Daniel quite well and and, uh, have great respect for his hard works. And him bringing this report forward is certainly um, one that that requires our attention and and our ear on this as a public, as a community. And he'll be joining us at 10.30 this morning to sort of unpack uh, where we're at. And and maybe, Richard, as we were talking in this, um, the prior segment about... uh, uh, Michael Korenberg, what the what sort of consequence we're looking at? What what the fallout from uh, if allegations such as these are proven to be true through the process of proper investigation, as mentioned by somebody as trusted as Mary Ellen Trapelafon, um, what might the consequences be for those who are found to have been taking part in something like this? And this is far more complex, I think, than Michael Kornberg's liking tweets. This is about, and we've heard from a number of Indigenous leaders over the last few days, about true systemic mm-hmm. racism in our healthcare system. And we've heard a number of stories from uh, Indigenous uh leaders and members of indigenous communities saying that they feel they are treated differently when in the healthcare system due to the fact that they are indigenous. And this could lead to some substantial changes, uh, dramatic overhauls potentially in our healthcare system, training improvements in our healthcare system, but also it could lead to significant discipline, not just for those involved uh, in these acts as described in the allegations, Jody, but we could have leadership being questioned around why they didn't act on previous reports, why mm. they haven't act on concerns of systemic racism in the healthcare system before. All of this will be part of a much larger picture that Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafont will look at slowly. Again, she's investigating one incident right now, but has the leeway to look at the much larger issue that, that clearly exists here based on what we've heard from Indigenous communities. And in chatting with Leslie Varley uh, on that yeah. note, it, when I was saying, well, wh- what is this? Because we talked on Friday when I was filling in for Jill Bennett and she was exasperated in the frustration of how this is just the tip of the iceberg. And it's it, it, it feels... Um, yeah, it feels like we're in this moment with Black Lives Matter and the discussion being opened on racism, the difficult conversation. You and I, as a couple of entitled white people talking racism, we have to check our privilege on these things. And and because when we go to emergency room, we'd never even think for a second that we'd have some kind right. of game played. And that that's the greater sort of cultural, community, human side of this that is going to be one that, that, I don't know, feels like the lid's been blown off something that we should have been paying attention long ago. And and for anyone who didn't hear it on Friday, I would go back and listen to Jody's interview with Leslie Varley. I spoke to Leslie Varley as well on Friday. This is an incredible uh, woman with a powerful story around um, how long this has existed in the system. And again, for people like you and I, you know, white, um, privileged, we don't have to go through that same experience that uh, many Indigenous people have got to th- go through in the emergency room. And Leslie Verley articulates that incredibly well. And so you're right, this is an important part of our discussions, but it's going to fall on government in order to do things here. And, and there's going to be, I think this is a perfect example of how well government can operate in terms of 
Adrian Dix being notified of these allegations, immediately finding someone mm -hmm. who is trusted and respected to do an investigation and allowing that independent investigation to take its time and to have the resources necessary. And I think when we look at institutions, UBC may want to take a page out of that book in terms of maybe it's time to take the example there and have a further discussion. Michael Kornberg has resigned, yes, but you know, those those um, values may still exist in parts of the institution. And so it may be time for our big institutions like that to do investigations to understand that a resignation may not be good enough to fully understand some of the systemic problems we have in our institutions. I'm Jody Vanson for Mike Smith this week. Thanks for uh, hanging out with us today on this Monday, busy Monday for you. And you got to get your dialing finger ready if you've got questions for Keith Baldry, because it is time for Baldry's Beat, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief joining me on the line. Hi, Keith. Morning, Jody. Good morning to you. A busy time in the House with the summer session returning. How is that? Yeah, well, it's weird. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's returning, but not returning. So uh, less than half the MLAs, I think, are actually here physically. Uh, most will be appearing or participating in legislative debates through so, through um, uh, Zoom or in some cases Skype. But I think primarily Zoom from their home offices or their constituency offices. Uh, there's only a uh, allowance for a maximum of 24 MLAs to be in the chamber at any one time, plus the speaker plus a couple of clerks to maintain social distancing rules. So the public health rules apply to the legislature like a lot of other workplaces. And it's interesting how much work has been put into ensuring this actually occurs uh, without a hitch. They've had a couple of rehearsals. And it's going to be interesting. I invite people to watch the parliamentary channel today because you're going to see a lot of MLAs on uh, Zoom and uh, in person in the House. And it's a, it's a hybrid model. You know what, it's fascinating to, to sort of see when we talk to uh, Minister Farnworth off the top of the show to talk about all of those practice sessions and all the making sure that it is safe and secure in this new normal, this COVID-19, following all of Dr. Bonnie Henry's um, advice on, on what is necessary to keep everybody safe. And yet, it wasn't that long ago, it feels, well, maybe it feels longer now with the pandemic, but when you and I were talking about this NDP green the green DP and, and the confident, the votes. And if one person misses a ferry or can't make it over mm -hmm. and the vote can't happen and the, that could topple the government, this changes everything. Well, it, it does. It's, uh, it's put everything into perspective. Um, it's actually, in some ways, it's, um, it's bolstered the liberals a bit because they can now rely on the vote of a member who hasn't been able to attend the house for some time because of illness. And that's Tracy Reddy's from South Surrey. So their numbers have gone up by one, um, but you know nobody's nobody's really thinking politically right now in the, in the chamber. Talking to MLAs on all sides, it's uh, it's really let's get through this pandemic, let's get through um, uh, you know trying to assist people to get through this rather than engage in overly partisan politics. Having said that, you know Mary Pollack told us yesterday, the Liberal House Leader. They are going to hold the government to account for a number of issues um, and, and want to question them on their, their aid packages, their aid programs, uh, issues like the condo insurance crisis, you know, that uh, they're, they're looking for the government to take action on some of these things. So we're coming out of a, sort of a, a deep freeze politically in the pandemic into a more 
traditional political atmosphere. But having said that, I don't think we're going to get, we're not going back to the old days of uh, high dudgeon and, and rhetoric, fiery rhetoric in the House. That just seems totally out of place right now, considering what everybody's going through. Uh, but you are going to see an opposition try to hold a government to account for a number of its actions, or in some cases, its inactions. And uh, that's it's going to be a, a fascinating experiment uh, for politicians who are normally used to a more combative uh, adversarial uh, conversation, if you will, in the House. It's going to have to be a different type of conversation, but we still need that traditional opposition holding the government's feet to the fire. No question. And at some points in past, pre-pandemic, it, it was theatrical almost at times. And yet, over these last four months, there's been this real sense of 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 uh, bipartisan, mm-hmm. we're in it together, you know, everybody pulling in the same direction for the greater good, like it has been quite something. So it'll be interesting to watch, as you said, like we'll be tuning in probably like never before. And interesting for you and your fellow legislative uh, reporters, uh, not the similar sort of hallway blue curtain no. uh, jam going on right now. No, that's another big change here is that everybody's been asked to sort of minimize your participation in this thing because we really wanted to the legislature is an old building it's got narrow hallways narrow corridors uh lots of closed spaces uh so it's an environment in which if the virus were to get into the ledge i'm not saying like it's like a long-term care home or anything like that but it is because of the physical confines it could spread quite quickly so everybody's been asked to minimize your physical presence in the legislature buildings itself you've got ministerial offices are down to skeletons staff. Uh, Normally in the speaker's corridor during question period or before question period, we're literally talking probably 100 people in there because of 87 MLAs and uh, ministerial staff, 20, you know, two dozen press gallery members. That's not going to happen. So press gallery members are being asked to stay away. We've got a couple of people in there who largely will act as, as pool reporters, just in terms of logistics. We've got three pool camera men from the from global ctv and cbc who will be there the eyes and ears for everyone to record things um so far we've been pledged cooperation from all the parties that they'll show up at these these mic- microphones and be tape recorded as we ask questions over the phone uh so it's an experiment for for in democ- in media democracy as well the likes of which we've never seen before where the the press gallery is sort of sitting this one out on the phone line rather than being there in in physical presence to ensure again that public health measures are followed Indeed. Anybody who follows you on Twitter, and if you don't, you should, at Keith Baldry on Twitter, the way you're keeping up with the numbers south of the border in specifically Washington State versus what is happening here, give us some idea of of why and when that started for you. I definitely look at it on the daily, just, and I'm shocked by the numbers. Yeah, so Washington State COVID-19 numbers have just suddenly ballooned uh, significantly. There, yesterday, or today, or yesterday, more than 450 cases in one day. Before, day before that was more than 600 cases. Um, five deaths yesterday, 10 deaths the day before. I think roughly over the last eight days, 3,000 cases 
more than 70 people have died. Uh, and that's right across the border. That's right next door to BC, which shows you how dangerous this virus can be. Uh, their hospitalization rates are, are, skyrock- are increasing as well. Washington State has one and a half times the population of BC. It has seven, 10 times the number of cases, seven times the number of hospitalizations, and seven times the number of deaths. Um, and wow. Hard to explain why that is. And it's not because of the protests. People are making a mistake that uh, the protests suddenly have spiked the numbers. That's not where the cases are occurring. They're occurring in more uh, outlying areas. Yakima, for example, which is the southeast of uh, Seattle, Yakima County, uh, uh, cases there have ballooned to the point where Governor Jay Inslee has mandated an order that everyone in Yakima County now has to wear a mask if they're out in public. Uh, so again, that's that's a, not a very urban area. That's not where the protests were, and it's just a sign. Why the another example of why the border has to remain shut. I, the reason I got interested in Washington, the Seattle Times moved a story about three weeks ago saying, "Hey, suddenly COVID is on the on the rise again, rather than on the decline as it had been," and that just shows you what's happening in the states and around the world. Uh, yesterday or today, I think it was the World Health Organization reported more COVID nineteen cases being reported than any single day in the pandemic. So yeah. there's this theory it's waning. It's not. Brazil, the deaths are off the charts. Uh, the United States, it's out of control, and including Washington State, and Canada remains this beacon of of uh, of uh, calmness in, in terms of not really being swamped by COVID, other than you know parts of Quebec and Ontario, but they're starting to flatten the curve as well. And BC is again this oasis uh, compared to the rest of uh, the world, frankly, in terms of us not really having a lot of COVID nineteen. I'm Jody Vanson for Mike this week, and we're hanging out with Keith Baldry on Baldry's beat. Of course, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about all things and your calls six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number. If you've got a question for Keith Baldry, star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell. And Keith, just before we dive into the phone board. Uh, the COVID cop piece, you, you've got some people that are worried about the border and they're saying, we've seen people with Washington state license plates are coming up. They're saying they're going to Alaska. You know, there's, there's some people that are getting significantly anxious about these things. Mm-hmm. And I like the way you sort of just calm the waters with, with some, yeah. some facts around that. Right. There is a bit of, I think, hysteria around this. I mean, take a step back and think how many people are going to cross the border at Blaine and drive all the way to Alaska. Uh, anybody who's even driven in BC knows what an arduous journey that is. And you're not going to see a lot of people wanting to do that. So you've got an account, perhaps. Uh, it is it has now been verified, apparently, where a family has, has been caught in Banff hiking, uh, came in through uh, Washington State, uh, saying they were going to go to Alaska. Seven people. Uh, but that's seven people out of, in a normal course of, of a year, we get more than six million visitors into BC. Uh, and far fewer uh, at actually at land crossings. But just put some perspective, we're not seeing uh, droves of people coming in from Washington State into BC illegally or improperly. Uh, but it is probably going to happen from time to time. And I think people just have to keep this in perspective. It's not happening in huge numbers. And the border, anybody who's, tried, who's crossed the border knows, I mean, you really... Uh, 
uh, run a serious risk if you're to lie to a, a border agent. Uh, the border agents can be very, very restrictive in their um, in their uh, rules and 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 such. So no, not, not many people are coming in that way. And again, the, the drive to Alaska is like a, almost a pioneer trip. It's it's uh, it's <laughs> it's not an easy trip. So people yeah, are not. No, it's doing no it. cruise down the 101. No, no, no exactly. No, no, and no, and no. and there's also troubling instances. Czech TV had a very troubling story last week of a local fellow here in Victoria. African American who lives in in Victoria. He's moved to Victoria. And he moved before the pandemic, but his 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 uh, car has Washington State plates. Mm. He hasn't made the switch yet. He's being harassed by people who are. Uh, I think there's some overt racism there uh, because he's got uh, Washington license plates, even though he's here perfectly fine, not breaking any rules whatsoever, and he's he's resorted to having to put a sign on his dashboard that says, "I live here." to tell people to sort of back off and leave them alone. I think there's a there's a bit of a intolerance out there for people who when they see an Alberta license plate get all excited or an Oregon license plate. There are many people who travel to BC uh regularly from out of province uh and out of country that were here before the pandemic began and people just I think have to take a step back and not rush to judgment over people traveling right now because you don't know their backstory, you don't know you all don't. the details. And Dr. Bonnie Henry's been clear from day one do not harass people for having an out-of-province license plate when you don't know the circumstances behind it right be kind be calm Mm -hmm. remember those mantras okay let's go to the phone board brian in vancouver you got a question for keith welcome to the show yeah um i know this is going to be an unusual uh legislative session but also kind of unusual is uh 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 the disagreements are, seem to be escalating between uh, Dr. Andrew Weaver and his former uh, caucus. And uh, that situation seems to be deteriorating as well. And I was wondering if uh, how you see the uh, NDP Green Coalition continue as we go forward. Yeah, I think I think it will be just fine. Um, first of all, and Dr. Andrew Weaver is very much on side with the NDP government. He's very... Uh, he offers Premier John Horgan and Adrian Dix high praise for the job they're doing in this. So there's no going to be be no breach there, and I don't think there'll be a breach between the the, the two Greens, Adam Olson and Sonia Firstenau, and the NDP government. In fact, I think uh, the relationship is as solid as ever. Uh, Sonia Firstenau has been working with Mike, with other House leaders such as Mike Farnworth and Mary Polak to get this session going under these new rules. Uh, so I think um, that's going to be fine. In fact, Jody, I've been watching the Legislature Channel. And I don't know if yeah. you're aware of the, on Twitter, the room raider. Um, oh, yes. Yes, yeah, so they rate people's rooms. You got a 10 rooms. out of 10. I've got 10 out of 10, but after I made some improvements, and I have to say, room raider's going to get onto this, because some of the MLAs are going to be judged rather harshly by room raider, who will want them to pick up their game. I just watched Marvin Hunt, who's a Surrey MLA, who just spent, uh, did a member's statement, um, part of the opening of the house, and he was out of focus the entire time on Zoom. Oh, so Martin. I think uh, think the MLAs are going to have to up their game. And I invite Room Raider, I'm going to tweet about this to Room Raider, that they invite them to take take um, a look at the MLAs on Zoom and offer them some tips on how to improve their performance. I'll be looking forward to that. <laughs> hey, I've got Angela hitting me up on Twitter, speaking of. Uh, she says that her, her biggest issue is with people coming in through YVR, she lives downtown, sees so many people from all over the world. She says she sat at Forte's the other night with a table of, of folks that were uh, of six who were visiting from South Africa, another table from Los Angeles. People definitely visiting through YVR. But if, if, if people are coming here a- and quarantine for 14 days, or maybe they've been here for 
an extended period of time or we're here before the borders close. There are a lot of pieces to this puzzle, right? Exactly. So so anybody coming through YVR has to go into self-isolation for 14 days. And and it's it's not just saying, oh, I'm going to do this. You have to have a plan. And, mm-hmm. and it has to be verified by, by up until Friday, what was provincial uh, BC civil servants who sort of been seconded into this role. Now it's federal government officials who have to sign off on your quarantine plan. Um, there are th- They check on you, too. They check on been, you multiple times. Exactly. There have been more than 40,000 um, contacts made with visitors to ensure their self-quarantining. So this is not taken lightly. So yeah. these people she met in a restaurant may very well have uh, been in a hotel for 14 days. Days, and now they're free to go out, just like anybody right. else, Whether just like Canadians who are returning. Canadians also have to go into self-isolation for 14 days, and then you can emerge and, and do what you want to do, uh, subject to, to public health rules. So don't, again, don't judge, don't rush to judgment about people you see in a restaurant who may be from another country. I think, Keith, that might be a piece of this that is being missed. The border to the U.S. is closed to only essential. Mm-hmm. But YVR, you can still travel to here as long as you isolate for 14 days, right? It's not it, it, essential travel globally to, to BC, it, is it? Yeah, so I go to I go to YVR's uh, website every day, pretty well every day, and check on uh, arrivals and departures. And there's very few flights in YVR right now, uh, but there are, yeah. they are arriving. I mean, there's there one from Mexico City, I think, yesterday, Japan, Tokyo, uh, one from China. Um, there's a regular flight from Seattle, Back and forth, uh, at least uh, once a day, if not twice a day. Uh, so yeah. there are, there is travel. People are traveling because it, they need to travel. Again, it's, it's not a lot of tourists occurring right now. Tourism occurring right now. It's people who are traveling largely on business. But again, if you travel um, and land at YVR, if you've been in another country, you have to self isolate for 14 days. And and I know some people who who've actually come back and forth two or three times in the pandemic. And it had to self-isolate each time they arrive. So um, it is occurring. But if people are following the rules, um, that's good. But again, don't jump to conclusions. I'm Jody Vance in for Mike this week. You know, Friday was an explosive day for the B.C. Health Ministry. Not about COVID-19 but about allegations surrounding a report obtained by Métis Nation BC and the BC Association of Aboriginal Friendship Centres. Here's Leslie Varley from BCAAFC on the Jill Bennett Show Friday. Until now, until Black Lives Matter and, you know, the protests in the States, yeah, I, I would ask that question myself. You know, data was provided to senior leaders in the health authority for many years, and and frankly, I left out of the frustration that nothing would happen and that I could, you know, work in within Indigenous community and advocate from this side because, you know, that kind of information often gets buried. And they didn't want us to, you know, to talk about this. They begged us not to go to the media about it. So, you know, these are internal processes that nobody gets to learn about because they're stifled you know, by the health authority, and um, and we're not we're not we're not supported as health authority staff to to uh, to speak up about these issues, or and certainly as indigenous employees, not supported to you know um, to really advocate. I mean, if you're a really good advocate, you're likely to lose your job in a health authority. 
That is the executive director of the BC Association of Aboriginal Friendship Centres, Leslie Varley. I was speaking with her on Friday. You can hear the exasperated uh, feeling in her voice in, in referencing the frustration associated with bringing these issues of allegations of racism toward Aboriginal people uh, here in British Columbia, specifically here and this particular report that came to light on Friday. The report dates March 2019. Uh, joining us now to speak through it a little bit more is the CEO of Métis Nation BC, good friend Daniel Fontaine. Glad you could join us today, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Joey. So as I was speaking with Richard Zussman a little bit earlier, um, he was saying, you know, you've recently uh, moved from BC Care Providers over to be the Chief Executive Officer of Métis Nations British Columbia. And he mentioned having not spoken to you yet, the assumption was similar to what I assumed here is that you're going through and, and trying to see you know, what are your resources? What are you looking at? What do you know? What are you finding out? What are you, what are you putting your hands on in your job? And you find this. Uh, these allegations from this report in in March of 2019. Can you walk us through what happened on Thursday? Sure, that that's relatively accurate. Uh, it's been kind of like drinking from a fire hose uh, the last few weeks, but yeah, I have made the shift over from uh, BC Care Providers and now working as both CEO and Deputy Minister for the Métis Nation BC. And as part of that, I'm obviously working with all of our various ministry staff to get briefed up. And uh, one of the things that was alerted to me last Thursday afternoon was uh, two parts. One was uh, an allegation uh, that had come through a a training session, a cultural training session where an employee from within the healthcare system indicated that at their emergency department, um, apparently it was a common game to uh, play with Indigenous patients to determine um, how drunk they were when they came in. So the assumption was that they had already been consuming alcohol and you had to guess how close the blood alcohol uh, level was. So there was that particular allegation, but then I was also made uh, apprised of two reports um, that were produced um, and published, uh, at least I believe internally within the government, in March of 2019. And they just, if, if any of your readers get a hold of that and read that report, um, it's just you know, incident after incident after incident of of uh, racist activities effectively happening within the health authorities and within the Ministry of Health system in British Columbia. And as soon as I was aware of that, um, I uh, indicated to the ministry that uh, uh, I would be uh, working with uh, the BC Centre for Aboriginal Friendship Centres. We would be making a communication on this the following day. So I, I notified the ministry the night before and as uh, history unfolded, uh, the minister, uh, uh, about 15 minutes before we issued our statement, the minister indicated that he had hired Mary Ellen Trupelifon, and now we're well underway with a, a fairly serious uh, investigation of what's happening within the healthcare system in BC. I was on the line for the press conference that Health Minister Adrian Dix held, that emergency or or rather short uh, notice press conference that happened on Friday. Uh, very... Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, unchecked. He was he was passionately, viscerally, um, straight up appalled. He used words unacceptable. Uh, you know, racism at its worst, if proven to be true. What what might the consequences? How could this change mm-hmm. racism in British Columbia? I guess that's the, that's the big question here, isn't it? 
Well, well, Jody, let's first put on the table that the issue of uh, systemic racism within the healthcare system is not new. Uh, as Leslie no. indicated, uh, you know, this has been something that has been well documented. Uh, uh, individuals like Leslie, other people within the health authorities have been raising this concern for years. The difference is that uh, there was this allegation around this particular game and this report has now been made public. So when you see it in black and white um, and you see the incidents and you see how Métis people and how other Indigenous peoples are not getting the same type of health care that, that non-Indigenous uh, patients are getting, um, that has to come to an end. And part of what motivated me to reach out uh, to the ministry is for action. And we've indicated that we, we don't want to wait for another report as much as we appreciate the work that Mary Ellen Terpelifon will be doing over the coming weeks or months. We need to take immediate action. If you read that report, I'm not sure where all those staff, those healthcare staff are that are allegedly uh, undertaking all this activity, but one assumes they're still working within the healthcare system today. And I had calls from from Métis people, uh, younger folks saying, how do I have trust or confidence to go into a healthcare system that, you know, I know has now been documented, um, is is essentially, uh, has components of it that are racist. And I'm not saying every employee is racist, but I'm saying that there's a component of it there and it needs to be rooted out as soon as possible. So we're encouraging the minister to set up that tip line, a 1-800 line. They can do that this week uh, and, and commit to making sure that if any healthcare worker sees this happening, if they are themselves Indigenous and, and are the, the victim of racism within the workplace, they need to have a place to go. Because we've been hearing from healthcare workers, Jody, that they've tried, as Leslie said, to bring this forward. And, and one woman I spoke to, a, a registered nurse, um, she raised this issue uh, right up through to the top and uh, thought she was going to be celebrated as a hero. She ended up getting fired, provided with a non-disclosure agreement, given uh, a set amount of funds and told to uh, get out of the system. <laughs> like, that that's is wrong. horrifying. That is horrifying. That's Those wrong. types of non-disclosure agreements should be abolished. Non-disclosure agreements should only be about creative properties. That is gagging somebody from from pointing out a systemic, horrific racism in what should be a, a human right and a civil right, in certainly in Canada and in healthcare. That's yeah, and I think that, yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And I think that Mary Ellen Terpelifon, assuming that she'll indicate later today or tomorrow when she speaks publicly about this, that she will have the authority of the Public Inquiry Act kind of behind her. My mm. assumption is she's going to ask the senior leadership of all the, the health authorities, what did they know? Have they signed these types of non-disclosure agreements? Have there been employees that have been let go as a result of reporting incidents of racism? Why was that? When did it happen? I think it's going to be a wide-ranging review well beyond this so-called game Price is Right. I think that game triggered this discussion, but it certainly won't be the end of that discussion. I think it'll go much broader in terms of the whole issue of systemic racism. Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and we're continuing our chat with Daniel Fontaine, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Deputy Minister for Métis Nation, British Columbia, and we're talking about, well, the jumping off point was this unbelievable breaking story from Friday of this this game allegedly being played in some BC emergency rooms, a Price is Right game around blood alcohol levels of in, uh, pre- predominantly Indigenous peoples and, and how that has opened up the conversation to include so much more information of just how big of an issue uh, racism directed at, at Indigenous peoples truly is here in British Columbia, across Canada, but here in our province. Uh, and Daniel, it's a really a, a, a difficult 
discussion to unpack it. It's a stomach turner. Just before the break, you told the story of, of one uh, healthcare worker who witnessed racism in her work and reported it through all the proper channels and ended up uh, out of a job and and gagged by a non-disclosure agreement. It just seems to me that that this is certainly a systemic issue. Yeah, and that was actually when I had that conversation with that uh, former employee. The one thing I said to them was, is there one thing that if you could look back now that would have made a difference for you in terms of actually affecting change? And what they indicated to me was there was no place for them to go when they kept getting turned away and were bringing things up the senior level, they, they couldn't go anywhere. There was no place to go. And that was kind of, I, I think for me, an aha moment around this whole process and all the different conversations I've had over the last 72 hours or so, is we really need to immediately set a place where, where if there are these incidents that people, even if the public is seeing them in an emergency room or if somebody witnesses it w- with their colleagues, they have to have a place to call this in. And they also have to have the backing of the, the minister and the ministry that there will be no ramifications for doing this. In fact, they'll be celebrated for encouraging this discussion and bringing this out into the open to make sure that there are no people working within the healthcare system that are treating uh, uh, Indigenous, Métis uh, individuals differently simply because of who they are. And so that can be instituted fairly quickly. I, I'm familiar with 1-800 numbers. They're easy to get a hold of, and I'm sure we could get that started and start cataloging that. And, and uh, so uh, our president... Uh, Clara Morin Dalcole met with the minister yesterday and had that discussion, made that recommendation, and asked very much for uh, the Métis Nation BC and uh, to be at the table, uh, both around the 1-800 line as well, as ensuring that the terms of reference for Mary Ellen Trapal-Lafon's review, um, that, uh, that, that not only the Métis Nation uh, is consulted, but other First Nations government across BC, we're at the table right at the get-go, so we don't have to learn about this uh, by reading it in the paper or listening on the radio that we're actually at the table uh, at the beginning before this inquiry gets started so that we don't go too far down the road only to find that the scope of this will not cover what it should be. And the process is part of this, right? The way things have been handled and managed traditionally over decades and decades, not not casting stones at certain people at this point, just just we've we've failed just overall to this point. And we have an opportunity here to get it right. And as you said in the last segment, and I think this is a big part as well, Daniel, is the last thing that is needed here is a long, drawn-out process that eventually sees it watered down enough that people are, you know, that 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 people scurry away from what they were doing out in plain sight, allegedly, in this this one tip of the iceberg prices right style game and really find a way to get into the culture of all industries, government, healthcare, Mm -hmm. business. And I had a conversation with George LaRock talking about black lives matter last week. And it was very poignant when I said, what needs to change? And he said, zero tolerance, top to bottom. Private Mm -hmm. life is the same as work life. You're a racist there. You're a racist here. You're fired. Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's where we're coming to. Yeah, and I, I think like if anyone reads that report like I did last Thursday afternoon, it, it took me all of a few minutes to read it to realize that if if the employees that are allegedly doing this are still within the system and there's been no accountability since March of 2019, you know, we have a lot of questions. Uh, and I know that Mary Ellen Terpelafon will also be asking those questions. 
who were those employees? What what mm-hmm. are senior level managers doing within the healthcare system to ensure that those employees are not interacting with not only Indigenous peoples, but they're outside the healthcare system? Have they been given the training that they need, the cultural uh, training? Like one of the things we've been saying for uh, well over a decade is that we need standardized training. Uh, health authorities shouldn't be allowed to pick and choose what type of cultural sensitivity training they provide. It should be standardized. There should be agreement with Métis Nation BC, other First Nation governments, to make sure that we've all signed off, that we agree on that standardized system, and it should be mandatory. Mandatory, that's the, yeah. that's the big thing. We can implement that tomorrow, Jody. There's no reason why we can't do that. So there's a lot of things we can do right now to begin changing that system and to begin actually fixing the system while we're working with Mary Ellen on the bigger picture of the report in terms of what she's going to come back with. But that's why we're calling for immediate action and not simply waiting for a report to come back in in a number of months, which we hope will be a good report, but we don't know. Now, when you say what the, what you were reading on Thursday, mm-hmm. um, and, and you said at one point, if any of your listeners have an opportunity to read that, where would one read that? Yeah, so that's available at the MNBC, so MetisNationBC.ca, so MNBC.ca website. If you go there, there was a, a news release that was issued uh, last, uh, obviously last Friday. And if you go right to the bottom of that news release, there's two URL, two links, where those both of those reports are available for download. And there's a smaller report and a larger one. And the smaller one does summarize in, in, in very graphic detail. In fact, I think it even does provide a warning uh, for the readers, that it has very graphic content. And both of those uh, reports are now available uh, to the public. Okay, so give us your website address one more time. So mnbc.ca, so metinationbc.ca, so mnbc.ca. And if they go there, they can actually click on that, uh, that link and just download the PDF file and, and have a read for themselves. And I would encourage people to to share that as well. It's on our it's on our Facebook as well for Métis Nation yeah. BC. So, yeah, it's on both. It is astounding um, what what we're up against here, and it's it's 2020, and and the the, the issues at hand are very real. And and that one eight hundred number certainly seems like a good first step. I've only got like thirty seconds here, but Daniel, if somebody witnesses something, is there is there a level of proof that needs to come with allegations uh, about this? Well, it's like any workplace, right? If there's any mm-hmm. allegations that are made within a workplace, there are normally are processes to actually follow through and to uh, make sure that the individual employees that are having inappropriate conduct are dealt with. So there, there are already processes in place. But as indicated earlier, if people are getting fired for reporting this and if they're, they feel uncomfortable bringing this forward to management, it simply won't happen. We're going to be talking about this in 10 years from now. So we mm-hmm. need to get going on making sure these employees are protected and, in fact, encouraged. To, uh, to share their ideas and their stories about this. So you and I are, don't need to talk about this again in, in 10 years. Right, but so we can celebrate them instead. Exactly. And, th- and talk about how much has changed. Daniel, always a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for having me on.